Well, good morning, Salt City Church. My name is Drake, and I am, yeah, pumped to be here with you this morning as we continue on in 1 Peter. So you can go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll be sitting there the rest of the day. But yeah, so I'm a college pastor um, here at Salt City, and we'll be the college pastor at the University of St. Thomas. And so I moved up a couple months ago, and as I was reflecting on my summer here in Minneapolis, I realized there was one thing that was like, in my mind, I missed out in not doing it this summer. And that is watching the greatest summer movie of all time. And you can have some debate, there is one answer, and that is The Sandlot. So The Sandlot is a story, yeah, okay, we got some cheers. The Sandlot is a story, and if you haven't seen it, you had some time. So spoiler, this is what Sandlot is all about. Sandlot is about a guy named Smalls moves into a town, and he's trying to fit in with the boys at the Sandlot. And so what he does is he goes over to the park and starts playing baseball with them, but then one day something tragic happens. They lose the ball over the fence where there happens to be a killer dog where they cannot get the ball back. And so Smalls is like, hey, my stepdad has a ball back home. Let me just go grab that real quick. And so he runs home, and it's in this casing or on this stand, and he grabs it, and he runs it back. And of course, what happens is that they hit this ball over the fence as well. And so then they're like, oh, let's just get a new ball. This should be fine. But the, then he's like, oh, no, this is an important ball. It was, it was signed by a ba- ba- baby Ruth. And they're like, babe, Ruth? And then they start going through the list. They're like the sultan of swat, the king of crash, the colossal of clout, the great Bambino. And right there he's like, that's the same guy? And what happened in that moment is that he realized the incredible value that that ball had. That it was signed by one of the greatest baseball players of all time, Babe Ruth. And he just realized he gave up that ball in order to pursue his desires of fitting in with the boys at the Sandlot. And the crazy reality is that is the exact same thing that we do in our Christian life time and time again. That we have incredible value in what God has blessed us with. That he has brought us into a relationship with him. And yet time after time we give that up to pursue the desires of this world. And so basically the, the big question that I want us to sit under this morning is how do I live a life for God when I still have desires for the world? How do I live a life for God when I still have desires for this world. And so point one is going to be to arm yourself with Christ. We can look at verse one as we get into it. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We'll park it there. So basically, it kicks off by showcasing us the humanity of Christ. 
that he suffered in the flesh. And what it's talking about here is that there was sin present in the world around him. There was temptation to give in. And the form of suffering it's talking about here is that he had to constantly resist that temptation. He constantly had to turn aside and run after God's glory. And so in that, Christ experienced a form of suffering. Where in his divinity, he could have snapped his fingers and had whatever temptation that was going on flee the scene. He didn't do that. He pressed into his full humanity and and suffered the weight of that temptation. Now, I would just love to ask you in this room, imagine that you are frustrated by something. Maybe it's your kids are extremely disobedient, not sleeping well, or maybe you're at work and your coworkers are frustrating you like crazy and you had the power to do whatever you wanted in that moment, what would you do? Because I feel like if we had that power, we would do everything in our abilities to get rid of any frustration, any disobedient child, anything that is making us wrestle in that moment. But Jesus did not tap into his divinity because he had to experience the full weight of that temptation as a human. And I love what Wayne Grudem says about the temptation of Jesus because a lot of times we wrestle with, okay, he was God. Like, did he wrestle with temptations like we do? And it starts off with, were the temptations real then? Many theologians have pointed out that only he who successfully resists a temptation to the end most fully feels the force of that temptation. Just as a champion weightlifter who successfully lifts and holds overhead the heaviest weight in the contest feels the force of it more fully than the one who attempts to lift it and drops it. So any Christian who successfully faced a temptation to the end knows that it is far more difficult than giving into it at once. Therefore, Christ's temptations were the most real because he did not give in to them. Since Christ fought the temptation to the very end, which led him to the cross, he then experienced the full weight of that temptation. So did he experience the same temptations as us? Yes. And he experienced them all to the full. And what this text says, as we look at Christ giving up the pursuits of this world, giving up any temptation to give in and not to pursue the glory of God, what we see next is that the scriptures call us to live the same way. And I think we would all agree that this is a form of suffering. In a culture around us that basically says, eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, And when we have a heart that is trying to convince us that sin is actually what we want most, it is incredibly difficult to fight that off. But that is the call that God has placed on our life. And I ask you, does this describe your walk with Christ? As someone who is fleeing your passions, fleeing your desires in order to run after God's glory. I think that there's Many in here who would say, I feel like I I give in to my desires far more. 
Like I feel the corruptness in my own heart. And even in the, the hymn, Come Thou Fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And I feel helpless in trying to defeat this on my own. So I was reflecting back to my freshman year in high school. And uh, one sweet thing about my freshman year of high school is that my brother was a senior in high school. And he was one of the top wrestlers in the school. And uh, I'm sure you can't imagine, but I was a rather small freshman. Not much has changed, but we won't get into that. So I was a small freshman dude. And what happens is that freshman dudes are trying to, like, show their, you know, their power with the other dudes. And uh, so there'd be situations where, like, I'd get in a little scuffle with some dudes. And, and, well, verbal, not like a fight. I would get into a conversation, and they would start talking smack. And I always knew I had an outlet. Like, I was like, hey, I got, my, my brother's actually right down the hall. Do you want me to go grab him quick? And then we can continue this conversation. Like, I knew in my own heart, I cannot defeat this dude, but my brother can. So I can go get him if you want. And essentially what this text is saying is that Christ is with you in your battle. Yes, you cannot defeat it on your own, but Christ is always with you. That he defeated Satan's sin and death and is able to defeat any temptation that comes up in your life. And a lot of us, I feel like in this room, and I know there's been seasons of my life where I feel like I am never going to defeat a certain temptation, a certain sin in my life. Like I'm just hitting a wall where I'm like, I am never going to be able to do this on my own. And what I want to say to you is if you are in that place this morning, that is an amazing realization. Because the reality is that we can't. That Christ died on the cross to prove that we couldn't do it on our own. He had to sacrifice himself in our place. And when Christ died, he took our death completely on himself. And then when he rose and ascended, he established a new lordship in our heart. So that sin would no longer reign. It would cease to reign in our heart. And now there's a new lord, and that is Jesus Christ. And so when we read this text and it says, since Christ lived this way, it's not saying, therefore, give it your best shot. Muster up all the strength that you have to try to be like Christ. What the text is saying is that since Christ lived this way, you can too, because now you are one with Christ. And he now rules in your heart and sin has ceased to reign. You can now operate off of the strength of of Christ. You can operate off the purity of Christ, the patience of Christ, and you can lean into him when you are feeling that temptation in your life. Christ is able to conquer any sin or addiction that you felt helpless to conquer on your own. And so Christian in this room, do you believe this about your battle with sin? Do you believe that you have the power in Christ to conquer this in your life? The call to be armed with Christ is simply to run to him in the midst of temptation. To cling to his strength. 
And then also to lean on the brothers and sisters that are around you in this room to pray for you when temptation comes up and fighting any urge to try to clean up your act on your own and try to make your own way. Because again, that's exactly what the gospel shows us we cannot do. And so when facing temptation, are you running to Christ to provide strength in that or are you leaning on your own strength? So when we begin to arm ourselves with Christ and we begin to run from the temptations of this world, it will bring about suffering in the process of that, but it's actually going to bring a greater form of suffering to follow. So let's continue in point two, to press on as strangers, starting in verse three. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are. They might live in the spirit the way God does. And so right away in verse 3, Peter is bringing about a point of reflection for all of us. Like he's just saying, you've had enough time going after your own desires. You've had enough time living like the rest of the world. And it's causing you to think back a little bit. And some of you are like, man, I, there's a lot of things in my past I wish I wouldn't have done let alone reflect on it, or why is he using such a nonchalant kind of language? Like, oh, you've had enough time doing that. Let's move on to something different. What he is trying to put a spotlight on is that there has been a drastic change that has taken place in your life. That as you reflect, there are certain things that you once found to be comforting and joy-filling, and now you are repulsed by, and you are actually caused to pursue Christ with a greater intensity once you look back. He's showing you that you've entered a new life, that you have become a completely different person by the blood of Jesus. And he says that when this happens, the world is going to be surprised by it. Because again, this world is one where it says, live it up here while we have our time whether that be sex or drinking or drugs or power or status, whatever it might be, this is the best way to pursue joy in this life. And when we don't join in in, in that same life, it says that they're going to be confused by it and that they will laugh at us. Literally, this term maligned means to heap insults onto us. And so some of you might have already experienced some of this. Where it might be something like, man, you're not as fun as you used to be. Like it's a bummer, the restrictions and the way that you have to live now. Or you have become so narrow-minded. Or maybe it's, you just think that you're better than us. And that's why you don't jump in in the same lifestyle. You are judging us for what we do. And so Peter is saying we should expect this. This shouldn't come as a surprise to us. 
There has been such a change in our life and in our heart that we were brought from death to life and now we are strangers to the people who are pursuing after this world. And so he encourages us to press on and to stand firm and he directs us again to the end times to be our encouragement for it. He's basically saying, keep your heads up at the end goal when you're facing adversity. So growing up, uh, one of my favorite things to do on vacations was easily hitting some roller coasters. So I love myself some roller coasters. And one day, I remember, my dad went over and beyond the normal, hey, like getting a ticket to a theme park is amazing, but he got the fast pass. And so we've got these fast passes in our hands and some of you who have been in the normal line seeing people in fast, fast pass, you're like, I hate those people. And we feel it. I get it. Because what happens is that when I started walking down the fast pass, you just get one after another, glare after glare after glare. And I even remember one moment that was locked in my mind that we got to the front and there was a dad and his daughter that already sat in their seat in the front row. And the, the guy running it said, hey, you need to get out. People with the fast pass are here. I was like, oh, that hurts. But <laughs> fast pass, it's a great thing. Um, so what happened in that moment is if I would have been looking for the approval of others, if my mind would have been set on the approval of others, I would have saw one glare and I'm like, okay, I'm out. I'm stepping in this other line. I'll wait with you guys. But that's not what my mind was set on. Like, my mind was set on, I'm about to go front row on this coaster and have the time of my life and then hop back in again. And so since that was what my mind was set on, the glares did not faze me. I literally just kept walking because I knew what was coming. And Peter is saying, Christian, do you know what is coming? Because if you know what is in store for you, the glares, the malignment, and the insults that people hurl your way will not faze you but you will be able to press on. And so he, he's giving us a picture now of what does that future reality look like. And he's actually going to direct it in two different ways. So one of them being that God will judge the living. And so he's saying to you who are in Christ, like God will judge you and see that you are made right by Christ and that you are righteous, that you are pure in his sight, and that you will be welcomed into life with him. And actually, he, he gives a further confidence. And I just want to read verse 6 one more time um, to, to visit kind of the tough text from this, this passage where it says, For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And so what he is actually talking about in this passage is he's talking about Christians who have since passed. Like once they were walking on this earth, they heard the gospel. They came to know Jesus and they were judged by people while on this earth. And since that has happened later on, they died, but now they are alive with God. Where the world would say, like, see, I told you so. Like, life ends. Live it up with what time you have here. Peter's saying, no, the people that have died, they are experiencing life with God, even though they experience judgment from people 
on this earth. So he's given us confidence, like your eternity is life with God. But then he, the future also paints another side where it says that God will judge the dead. And so ultimately, God will be the final judge for those that do not put their faith in him, and they will experience the full weight of his judgment for their sin. And essentially what Peter is saying is the judgment that you are feeling right now from their comments pales in comparison to the judgment that they will have to face before God if they do not put their faith in him. And so he's saying, press on. Know what is coming for you. So we have been equipped with Christ. We've been armed with Christ to begin to die to ourselves. We've been equipped with Christ to press on towards the goal that he has already established for us with certainty that he is holding in heaven for us, as he said earlier in this letter. But we also see that we're going to be armed with Christ in order to live the new life that he has called us to. And so our last point is to pursue one another in love. Starting in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And so right away, he's telling us to be alert. Like, have your mind fixed on the reality of the end times because what happens when you know what is coming is that it helps you to fight to go against what you don't want to do. And it also empowers you to fight for what is important. It helps you to fight for living for God's glory. And what that looks like is that we are a people that fight to love others. That we are a people who have been impacted by such a grace, such a great forgiveness, that we are able to go out and forgive and to love no matter what sin. That we are a people that we see how God welcomed us into his family, and so then we can go out and welcome people into our lives, whether that's in our house or in our workplace. We can welcome people in even if it inconveniences us. Because it's nothing compared to the inconvenience that Jesus had. We not only kill our desires by fighting them with Christ. But we also kill them by fighting to live the new life that we're called to be with Christ as well. So when we seek to love others, we, the reality is that when we do that, we have to give up our own desires. In order to love someone else well, I have to put aside what I want in that situation. And so one thing that I have uh, been doing a good amount this summer is utilizing my new Weber grill. So that has been my baby this summer. And so I've been out, and unfortunately for my wife, there's been some trial 
seasons with that, but I've been working on it. And I've been learning, I watch, you know, a lot of YouTube videos to learn top 10 tricks of charcoal grilling. And I've learned all the things. And one thing that I have learned is that in order for the heat to go down of the coals, what you have to do is you have to close the vents. And so what happens is that whether you're done or you just want the heat to go down, you will close the vents. And what it does is that it starves the heat of the oxygen it needs to get hotter. Therefore, it cannot keep getting hotter. And, and what Peter is saying, as I love the drastic difference from the first section of this text, is that when we pursue to love other people, it starves our heart of the selfishness that grows within us. It is the practical way that we need to live in order to starve our heart of the selfishness. Because when we pursue loving others, we, we begin to fill our minds with the concerns of others. We begin to fill our hearts with the brokenness and the pain that others feel or the joy that other people feel. And so as we do that, we think and consider ourselves less. I love this Tim Keller quote where he says, The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. As we begin to pursue others, and we are armed with Christ to do that, because as we are armed to, with Christ to defeat sin, we are armed with him to love others as well. It begins to rid us of constantly thinking of ourselves. So there might be some of you in this room that are like, hey, Drake, when I'm around people, I actually see that my sin comes out more. Like, I, I feel like people are the reason for my sin coming out. There seems to be a strong correlation there. Like, you're telling me to pursue people. When I do that, it doesn't happen like you're saying. And that's what community does. Like, yeah, we will pursue people, but what community also does is that it exposes the sin that is already in our heart. Like, if you welcome people into your home, you're going to realize that you have some pride. Like, you're going to see that there are some things you think you deserve that I think I deserve that I think other people need to be giving me. Or there's some ideas that you're like, I think that this is the only way to think of this. And other people need to come to my turf and have the same understanding. When we pursue life with other people, we realize that our sin comes out. But what we get to do when that happens is that we get to confess that sin to the community that we are living with. And we get to experience the joy and the freedom of living in who we are in Christ. That we will be forgiven if we confess our sin. That we get to walk out of the identity of who we are and then love people well. And so the gospel frees us from our selfish desires and actually enables us to love other people above ourselves. And so some questions that I want you to reflect on is, what are relational disciplines that you could implement into your life? Like a lot of times in our culture, we'll talk about spiritual disciplines, and I think those are amazing and we need those in our life, but what are some relational disciplines that you could put into your life this week 
that would cause you to pursue others well. Like maybe it's like, I want to have one or two people over for dinner a month. I'm going to ask three people a week in my connection group for a prayer request, and I'm going to pray for them. Or I'm going to meet one new person every week this Sunday to make sure they feel welcomed into this family. I'm going to invite them into our connection group so they can experience life with believers. What does that look like for you? And my next question might be a little bit more of a touchy subject. um, But when you look at the community that you're in, the connection group that you're involved in, what is the thing that you are constantly saying, man, I wish this was different about our group? Like, I wish we encouraged people more. I wish that we would speak truth more. I wish that we hung out more. I wish that we shared more meals together. What is that for you? Because the reality is the things that we are hypersensitive to noticing a lack of is probably what we're wired and gifted to actually bring to the group. And we're called to step up and actually bring our giftings to serve and love others, not to hold them back and then expect everyone else to bring their giftings to the table. Guys, the only way that we are able to live like this is because Christ died on the cross in our place. That Christ showed the perfect example of living a life for the glory of God and giving up himself for the sake of someone else by going to the cross for us that we could experience life with him. He died on the cross and took upon himself our death and our sin and he did away with it completely. Our old self completely so that it no longer has reign in our life. And he brought about a new life that we get to walk in. Not to make us right before God, but because he has made us right in the gospel. In order to remove the desires that we have, we have to come back to the cross and see that Jesus already defeated Satan's sin and death and the greatest disruption to history. And he can defeat the sin that is present in our life. And we have to go to him for that. But we realize that he now equips us to replace that brokenness with a heart that is passionate about pursuing and loving one another well. And all of this, the end of this text says, is for the glory of him. Like if we think about it, we are not trying to broadcast our greatness because we know that we are broken people. All of this is meant to be to give Jesus all the glory for what he's done for us. So let's walk out of the identity that Jesus has already earned for us. Let's pray. Jesus, I... I feel time and time again temptation arising. And yeah, just that those lyrics of prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, God. I I feel that so often. And then I I feel the the need to make myself right before you. But God, the, the joy of the gospel is that you saw that we were prone to wander from the beginning of time. And that is when you chose to come to the cross. That is when you said, I love these people so much. Though they are incredibly broken, though they actually want their own glory other than myself, I'm going to go and die for them. 
So Jesus, as we worship, would we be a people that praise you for what you've done? God, that we are defined as who we are by what you have done and by not the failings in our life. And would we realize that we are not this crippled warrior, but we are an invincible warrior because Jesus, you are in us and are able to defeat sin in our life. Would we go forward in the strength of you? Would we walk forward in the purity and in the patience of Christ, all to love people well and to give you glory, Lord? It's in your name we pray. Amen.